When the Lord began to speak to our heart about this, God used a particular story in the Bible to speak to us. It was the story of Gideon. Who remembers the story of Gideon? The Gideon scenario. Everybody say the Gideon scenario. Let me give you three things, and then we're going to develop the third thing. The first one is this. In the Gideon scenario, there was a huge challenge in the land of Israel during that time. If you know the story, the Midianites were a foreign nation, and they had completely overrun the entire area. They controlled everything. The people in Israel were being oppressed by the Midianites. There was hopelessness on every corner. There was a huge challenge for the people of Israel. How many of you know that we live in a time in American history where there is a huge challenge? Do you sense it? Everywhere you turn, everything you read, everything you watch on TV, we see sin from sea to shining sea, and you can't get away from it. Do you feel it? Do you sense the battle at war? There was a huge challenge in the land. Right now, America, our region, our country, our school systems, our political systems, in the four walls of the churches, cross denominations are experiencing and many cowering under the weight of this oppression. Can I tell you, God can handle challenges. God's got solutions. God has remedies. There's a huge challenge, just like in the time of Gideon. The next thing we see in Gideon is the crafting of a remnant army. The crafting of a remnant army. You remember, God picks this unlikely guy by the name of Gideon, who was lost in obscurity, the least in his tribe, the least in his family, hiding out in a wine press. And God sends the angel and says to him, Gideon, valiant warrior. Go figure. God doesn't pick likely candidates. He picks him and he calls him out. Gideon has a Revelation. He steps out. He begins to call forth an army of tens of thousands. And then God comes to him and says, Gideon, you got too many people. Gideon's like, excuse me, I only have like, you know, 22,000 or so. And we're going up against an army of 150, some say over 250,000 collective kingdoms that had come against the nation of Israel. And God says, you have too many people. I tell you, God's not into big numbers. God's in to remnants. He began to craft a remnant army. Can I tell you, you're a part of that right here this morning? God has put together a remnant army. Folks from Cornerstone, folks from Meadow, and that third group that God has brought in over the past six months or so, that God has brought into this place to form a remnant army to do something spectacular and come against and challenge the Midianites in the land. God works through remnants. There was a challenge. There was the crafting of a remnant army. And this is really interesting here. There was unconventional weaponry. Unconventional weaponry that God handed out through Gideon to the only 300 that were faithful to go up against an implacable enemy. Who knows God's into unconventional weapons? Check this out in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4. It says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. God has given us everything that we need to accomplish the mission and assignment he has called us to, but it's not with fleshly weapons. 
They are with spiritual weapons, unconventional weapons, if you will. And it's interesting, we find in the book of Judges, chapter 7, that these three weapons are handed out to the 300 to be used in their battle against the Midianites. Judges 7 and 16. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all men and empty jars with torches inside the jars. We see trumpets, we see empty jars, and we see torches. What does that mean for us? Pretty much some pretty unconventional weaponry, right? Wouldn't you have wanted like some big shields and big, you know, swords and your God's able to reach into the future and pull in some Humvees and some, you know, tanks and some RPGs? But that's not what was handed out. A clay pot, a trumpet, and a torch. What in the world did God have in mind? What can we see in this for us? Trumpets. When I think of trumpets, you know what I hear? I hear unity. I hear unity. When God blows the trumpet, people begin to gather to the trumpet. Why? Why are we doing this? For the sake of unity. We desire, we are here because we desire to be the fulfillment of one of the most heartfelt prayers of Jesus that we find in John chapter 17. Listen, this is what your Savior prayed. Are you ready? Who wants to be the answer to the prayer of your Savior? I want to be the answer to my prayer of my mom or my dad or my friends, but I want to walk in the fulfillment of the prayer of my Lord and Savior. And this is what Jesus prayed in John 17 and 21, that they may all be one. Who's he talking to? His people, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I think it's interesting that the credibility of the church of Jesus Christ is not hinged on miracles. It's not hinged on our architecture. It's not hinged on our bank accounts. It's not hinged upon our good looks, though we have much of that. The credibility of the church of Jesus Christ hinges on the unity in his body. That should tell us something, shouldn't it? that we should strive for unity above all else. Unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. What I believe is Lord began to birth this upon our hearts. It was what Jesus wants. How many of you wanna be a part of what Jesus wants? Not what I want, or always getting God to bless what I want, Lord. I wanna want what you want, Lord. And this is what he wants. Well, unified how? How are we to be unified? There are three areas in this that he is calling us to be unified in. The first one is this, unified in worship. Unified in worship. When they would sound the trumpet or blow the shofar, it was the call to worship, to worship God. Do you realize us gathering here this morning is a fulfillment of what we're supposed to do? God is sounding the alarm to call his people back to true and authentic worship. John 4, 23, the classic verse found in the conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well, we find this. But the hour is coming and is now here. Everybody say is now here. Right, it's a present reality. The hour is here now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. 
So we see Jesus praying for unity. We see the Father seeking worshipers. Do you see a theme in that? These are things that God wants, and we see the manifestation even within the Trinity of the desire of God. Through all parts of the Trinity coming forth. Unity, love, worship. What is worshiping in spirit and in truth? Can I tell you, worship is not, true worship is not tied to a, to a style or how many songs you sing or how many songs you do not sing. There's something else that happens in worship. Worship comes from the word worthy, to ascribe worth to something. Our worship comes from ascribing worth to God. We must grow in our worship. Don't you think? We must learn how to worship. We must worship more. Listen to this. Many of us are more concerned about raising our standard of living rather than raising our standard of longing. We spend a lot of time figuring out ways, tactics, and strategies to raise our standard of living. But I ask you and I ask myself, what are we doing to raise our standard of longing? You see, worship flows out of a heart that longs for God. David would say it this way, as the deer panteth for the water brook, so my soul longs after thee, O God. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and a weary land where there is no water. Psalm 63, 1. Longing. We're going to begin to worship and invest ourselves in increasing our longing for the things of God. Unified in worship. Can I just tell you something to offer something to do? Reverence is not only expressed in quietness, but it's also expressed in exuberance. Sometimes when we hear that we need to be reverence in the, in the house of God, and we interpret that, well, we need to be quiet and reverential, be like quiet as a mouse. Don't say a word. Now, there's a time to be still and know that he is God. But I dare say you can probably make a case there's more noise in heaven than silence in heaven. In other words, worship comes forth in exuberance. It's the manifestation out of our very posture, out of our extremities to show worship to our living God and our living King. I am perplexed when you go to a UGA game, I see some exuberance there. I see some excitement. In fact, I see absolute passion there. People do some crazy things to show forth their joy of the game. But I dare say we walk into a church building and sometimes it's difficult to distinguish a church service from a funeral service. Do you think if we really believe what we say we believe, there would be a manifestation of joy? And joy is uncontainable. It flows out of us. It's why the Psalms go to great lengths to tell us how to do it. Come, let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. Let us lift up holy hands to the Lord. Let's clap your hands, all ye people. Let's shout unto God with a voice of pride. Let's dance before the Lord. Listen, we're going to grow in our expression of worship. And guess what? It's not craziness. It's not any more crazy than going to a UGA game. In fact, it makes a lot more sense to come into the presence of God with God's people to be unified in our worship of Him. And it's okay to worship the Lord in quietness. And it's okay to worship with Him in exuberance. And to tolerate each other whatever moment you're in in worship, it's okay. Don't try to expect the quiet person in worship to, to dance. Don't expect the person that's going to dance to say, I'm going to be quiet. There's room for all of it 
in the body of Christ. It's joy unspeakable and full of glory. God wants us to worship him and in song and in music. A few years ago, I took my wife for her birthday or anniversary. We went to a um, Neil Diamond concert. Now, I'm sure some of you are so holy you would never go to a secular concert, but we went to a Neil Diamond concert at Phillips Arena. And can I tell you something? 18-year-olds to 95-year-olds, that place was packed out. They were singing Sweet Caroline, and boy, man, they were going to town. And it was fun. I was thinking to myself, why is more happening there than in the house of God on a Sunday morning? Don't we have much more to give thanks for? Then sweet Caroline, whoever she may be, God bless her heart. <laughs> Unified in worship, growing, growing in our longing and our desire for him. That's part of the unity that we've been called to. Not only unity in worship, but also unified in serving. Unified in serving. When the trumpet blasted, everyone took their positions to get ready for war. They took their positions. Even amongst the 300 in Gideon's time, they broke up into three different camps. What does that mean? That we all have a place and a part. We all have somewhere to be and something to do in this great army, this great remnant army the Lord is crafting. We all got, there's, there's, there's no place that says you occupy a chair and that's it. Part of the trumpet call of God is calling his people into position. It has been said, unity is not uniformity. Unity is expressed in great diversity in different parts of the body doing what they're called to do. And that comes how? That comes through teaching. That comes through preaching. That comes through grass cutting and taking care even of the house of God. Next Sunday, we're going to have a meeting. Who's going to cut the grass around here? We should be full. Yes, sign me up to cut the grass. It's a heart of serving. Serving here, because here's the reality, if, we're, if we can't serve in the household of faith, how are we going to be able to serve those in the world? This is ground zero for all this begins. We're unified in worship. We're unified in serving. Guess what? Then we can be unified in fighting. Unified in fighting. 1 Corinthians 14, 8 declares that if the bugler doesn't sound a clear call, how will the soldiers know they are being called to battle? As we answer the question, why? Why? Because we are being called to battle in this hour. Wake up, look around. The Midianites have forced us all into our individual wine presses, and we're hanging out there in survival mode while the enemy runs rampant across the land. Just like with Gideon, it's time to emerge out of our wine presses and out of our cellars and say, Yes, Lord, I will walk in the call a valiant warrior. I'm not content to let my family go to hell. I'm not content to let my neighbors go to hell. I'm not content to be silent when the enemy is roaring. Can I tell you, the lion of the tribe of Judah's roar is louder than our enemy's roar. But his roar is locked up in our collective lungs. You hear me? His roar is locked up in our collective lungs. And if we're not speaking, we're not worshiping, we're not declaring, there's no roar from the lion of the tribe of Judah because he has entrusted that to us. Unified in fighting. Look at this. This is interesting. Numbers 10, 9. And when you go to war, 
in your land against the adversary who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with trumpets that you may be remembered before the Lord your God, and you shall be saved from your enemies. You hear that? The alarm is sounding. The trumpet is blowing. We are gathering for war, unified in it. And God says, and you shall be saved from your enemies. Unified in fighting. Can I tell you something? We're going to fight regardless. We're always going to be fighting. If we're not fighting for him, guess what we're doing? We're fighting each other. Listen, you may not want to fight. Listen, we... You're going to fight regardless of where you are or what you're doing. The question is, who's your enemy and who are you fighting? i tell you what happens in the church, and Paul gives us just a glimpse of this in Galatians chapter 5. He says, but if you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. Can I tell you, we've been guilty of that in the church of Jesus Christ in the modern era a modern era of denominationalism and division and gossip and backbiting. He says, you will devour each other. There is a fight to be fought, but it's not with each other because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. The weapons that he has given us are mighty in God. And when we begin to unify in worship, we begin to unify in serving, we begin to unify in fighting, guess what's going to happen? Victory. Because nothing is impossible. When you go back into the book of Genesis, there's an interesting passage surrounding the Tower of Babel. So God is looking upon mankind and their construction of this ziggurat to God. They become God in their own eyes. And then God begins to have a conversation with himself. The Holy Trinity begins to talk to each other. And I want you to hear what God says about mankind as he looks upon the people in Genesis. He says, look, he said, the people are united and they all speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. They all speak the same language. They were united in language. They were united in their task. And God says, nothing will be impossible for them. You realize who we are? The power of unity? The enemy is able to harness the same unity for his purposes. That's, what he, that's, how, he, that's how he systematically operates. But what God is doing here, he is unifying us. And that which seemingly is impossible, that which when a 300-person army looks at a Midianite advantage, it's nothing in the eyes of God. For they were defeated. Unified in worship, unified in serving, unified in fighting. The trumpet speaks to unity. Well, the next thing that you find is this, these empty jars. These empty jars. Empty jars speaks to expectation. Expectation. You know what today marks? This marks our moving into the new wineskin that God has called us to. When you move into a new wineskin, we should be expecting what? New wine. What should we expect in this new season? What kind of expectation do we have? Let me give you again three things. Number one, expect to be poured out. Expect to be poured out. If we are not being poured out, then we are dead. We are dead. Do you know it's possible to be dead and still look good? I've been to many funerals, and I've looked in the coffins, 
and the body laying there was much prettier than the body that walked around. I'm serious. It's possible to be dead and still look good. I had a chance to go to Israel a couple years ago, and it was fascinating going to the Dead Sea. I'm not sure what I had in my mind, but I was thinking, oh, we're going to get to the Dead Sea, and it's going to be this foul-smelling, stinky-like swamp. And we came up to the Dead Sea, and I looked out over it. Some of you that's been to Israel know this. You look out, and you're thinking, oh, my gosh, it's beautiful. I mean, the water's blue. The sand is white. I mean, it's pristinely beautiful. It was not what I was expecting. Because you know why? It was the total absence of life. The total absence of life. And even life always smells like something. There was no even bacteria that produces bad odors. And the Lord spoke to my heart and said, look how beautiful something is. But yet it's totally lifeless. Why is it lifeless? Because the Jordan River is spilling into it and there's nothing coming out. And when there's nothing coming out, you know what happens? The word describes it this way in 2 Timothy 3, that it is formless and void. It has a form of godliness, but it denies the power. The only way power comes forth is when there is a pouring out. Expect to be broken. Now, in the Gideon scenario, it is broken pots are the means by which we are poured out. It's not just this, you know, casual pouring out. I mean, the pot absolutely breaks. And when the pot's broke in the story of Gideon, what happened? It confused the enemy. Now, listen very closely. Brokenness and humility will confuse the enemy. Brokenness and humility will confuse the enemy because everything the enemy does is built off of pride. Everything he fuels in us that is counter kingdom is built upon the seminal sin of pride in our life. That's why broken pots is the method by which we are poured out. Broken pots confuse and confounds the enemy's plans. Can I tell you, it's part of being broken. It's part of humility. It means that, Lord, we are going to walk in humility. We're going to walk in brokenness. We're going to walk in teachability. We're going to bow low. Expect to be poured out. Expect to be filled up. Expect to be filled up. Being continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you, let me just speak to my, my tribe for a minute that comes from a Pentecostal charismatic background. We'll say, oh, yeah, I was filled with the Spirit, yeah, back in, you know, May 25th, 1975. That's when I was filled. I am so sorry for you. That's the last time you were filled with the Spirit. <laughs> Listen, if you are leveraging your experience based on some moment in the past, you have missed the point. To be filled with the Spirit is to be ongoingly filled with the Spirit. Not being drunk with wine, but be filled, be filled, be filled, be filled. It doesn't happen one time and you build a memorial to it. Listen, I was associate pastor at church for years with a group of people. That's exactly what they did. Oh, yeah, we're Spirit-filled. we I'm back in such and such time. And, man, the most dead, dry people I've ever been around my entire life. Because they were not continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. And here's the beauty of it, right? Here's the beauty of when you are filled once again is that through the brokenness, through being spilled out, as the Lord begins to put that broken clay pot together and he begins to fill you, guess what? You have a greater capacity for the things of God in your life. 
With every successive filling comes a greater capacity for the things of God in your life. And it's built upon the brokenness. If you're in control of, I'm going to pour a little here, pour a little there. No, God wants to break you so he can remold you, so he can fill you, so you can contain more of him. That's how it works. But you try to bypass the brokenness, you try to bypass the humility, you're going to miss the very heart of Jesus and be limited. A broken spirit and a contrite heart, David prayed in Psalm 51, the Lord has yet to deny. The Lord wants us broken so he can fill us over and over and over again as we are broken in his presence continually. That's how we grow. Why is that? Because it has been said, and it is true, that the head expands faster than the heart. The head expands faster than the heart. In other words, it's possible to grow in your head knowledge, but your heart stays dwarfed and small. It's at the place of brokenness before the Lord. Your heart begins to contain more of him. We don't need any more expanded heads. Don't you think we have enough of that? We have truly educated ourselves into stupidity. We don't need any bigger heads. We need bigger hearts. We need bigger hearts. Expect to be poured out, broken, and filled up. Going really fast. The third weapon is this. Torches torches. When you think of torches, you think of, you think of light. You see, out of the broken clay pot, the light is revealed. It's interesting in the story of Gideon, what showed forth the light is when they were up on that mountain, they were gathered around the Midianite army. It's when they broke the pot, the light was seen. Isn't that just pregnant with meaning? What are we? Earthen vessels, Paul teaches us. We are earthen vessels. We have this treasure within earthen vessels. The Lord desires us to be broken. It's in our brokenness where the light of Jesus is truly seen. It's in our humility. It's in our meekness. It's in our gentleness. It's in our kindness that births true Jesus out of the Spirit. It's not in arrogance and pride for the life of me. I don't understand how pride can advance itself in any servant of God. Because it's not Jesus. Jesus came into Jerusalem, meek and lowly, riding on a donkey. What was he saying? Juxtaposed as to Lucifer coming up against God to take and be God himself. Birthed in pride. You see, Satan became Satan when he was Lucifer and said pride filled his heart. He wanted to ascend and take over. So what was Jesus showing us? Pride is not the answer. Humility is the answer. Pride is dangerous. The word teaches us that God actually opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. We answer the question, why? Because God has brought together a humble people willing to put aside personal preferences old school stuff, new school stuff, and said, Lord, we're here in humility before you. And it speaks to truth. The light speaks to who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. The gospel is the hope of the world. Do you believe that? The gospel of Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. It's the clear teaching of Jesus that, that there is no other answer. There is no plan B. 
The message of Jesus is the hope of the world. There's no other hope coming. He is it. He is the manifestation of the fullness of God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, I and the Father are one. Oh, that just scalds the heart of the religious and the Pharisees. Because Jesus said, I am it. He is the hope. He's the hope for your life and my family's life. We have the answer, the treasure in earthen vessels. And when the light is exposed as we are broken clay pots before him, can I tell you, the darkness recoils. It recoils at the light. And for some, my brothers and sisters, you are going to be the aroma of life. And that is a wonderful thing. For those who are being saved, it's a wonderful thing. But rest assured, as your pot begins to break and as the light begins to pour forth, you may not be the most popular guy in the neighborhood. You're going to take some stands that are not popular. Because for those who are not embracing it, it is a stench. You should have two profound effects on people when you get around them. Either the aroma of life or the aroma of death. People are going to want to be around you or they're going to want to get as far away as they can from you. If you operate in some nebulous lukewarmness, I can tell you there's a problem in our spirituality. That's the effect we should be having on those around us as the light comes forth. He is a solution to the sin problem. He is the manifestation of truth and grace. This is Jesus. The light represents who the Holy Spirit is and who Jesus is and what they are here to do. Grace and word and spirit. In the Gideon scenario, it was when the clay jar was broken, the light was exposed, and the enemy was confused and defeated. You hear that? In the Gideon scenario, it was when the clay jar was broken, the light was exposed, and the enemy was confused and defeated. Brothers and sisters, the unconventional weaponry has been handed out. That's why you're in this place this morning, and this is the platform for what God desires to do in this place. The Midianites are not going to be in charge much longer. God is raising up a standard against the enemy. I'm privileged to tell you in the past couple of weeks and couple of months, it's been kind of building. I have the privilege of meeting with some of the largest churches and their pastors in this region that are meeting together to pray for revival. I'm not cross-denominationally. The largest churches in our area, pastors coming together to pray for revival. And that little group has a vision to pull together 50 to 100 other pastors in our region to pray for revival. That's what we're a part of. We are not an island to ourselves. What God is doing here is bigger than here. It's bigger than here. It's bigger than here. And God is using the ministry of transforming truth, just preaching ministry, to go on the airways. And it takes, you realize that's going to take you beyond this region, and that's going to cast it around the country and around the world. We're already seeing it. Look at what God has entrusted with this remnant army in this place right now. Can I tell you something? In the kingdom of God, big doors swing on little hinges. Big, big doors swing on little hinges. I wonder if the 120 gathered in the upper room praying on that day had any clue of how God was going to use those individual lives to turn their region upside down. Do you realize every one of us in this room right now are a result of the faithfulness of 120 people that gathered in an upper room to pray and seek God for 10 days? We're a product of that. 
I expect nothing less than how God is going to use this gathering and in this place in the days to come. Amen? Amen. Worship team, would you come? My goodness, that was fast, wasn't it? Let's stand together, shall we? It's a significant moment in the history of the story that God is writing in this place. And you're part of it. You're part of it. He's bringing forth unity. He's bringing forth an expectation. He's bringing forth an expectation. And he's, and he's birthing the light of truth around us. And nothing will get in the way of a unified army of God. Nothing will get in the way. And you may think, oh, I'm not qualified, I'm not ready. Well, good. If you're not qualified and you're not ready, then you are qualified and you're ready. That's exactly who the Lord uses. For the life of me, I can't even understand why the Lord tapped me on that afternoon, Sunday afternoon, October the 4th, and said, go talk with Jeff. I mean, I don't, I, I don't understand that. Listen, there's nothing good in me, buddy. I'm the, most in, I'm the most inadequate person for this. That God says, that's what I want. But you're not going to do it alone. I'm going to put a small army around you of like-minded, passionate people from every socio and economic race and nationality level to come together. That's laying aside denominational loyalties and preferences, coming together because the tide is rising. God is moving and it's not his will that any should perish. And the days of his renown and the days of his greatness is not over. It is just beginning. And the prophets longed to live in the days that we're living in. The prophets long to live in the moments that we live in. The question that we have to ask ourselves, and by you being here this morning is an affirmation of that, it's time to raise ourselves. It's time to catch the wind of the sovereignty and providence of God to accomplish his purpose in the here and now. What does that mean for you? It's time to pray, time to fast, time to change diapers, time to cut grass, time to sign up and say, here I am, send me, I'm willing to do whatever it takes for the cause. To walk into your office and it's no casual thing. There's a guy in the cubicle next to you that's struggling. It's no accident. There are Lazaruses laying at your door all over the place to bloom where you're planted and be the servant of the Most High God. Amen?